Hey guys, I'm Dr. McFarland, and this is the Community of Confident Musicians podcast. And today we have with us Bruce Kasperzak. He's a longtime friend and audio connoisseur. But uh, hey, Bruce, how's it going? Excellent. Uh, other than just going to work, coming back, and not doing much of anything else, uh, it's getting by. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Well, let's go ahead and talk about a little bit of your history with recording and maybe some of the groups you've worked with over the years. And uh, mm -hmm. I know you as Mr. Analog, but <laughs> that was, it's, it's kind of strange when we met because that was kind of at the tail end of MTSU actually having uh, like analog components in the studios before they started mm -hmm. going like Pro Tools and stuff like that. So right. I guess kind of give me your background on why you got into this whole recording thing in the first place and just start. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, I guess... Uh long time ago in a state far, far away uh, at uh, Holy Cross High School in South Jersey, I was prime minister of the AV club. And I appointed myself that title because the uh, faculty advisor, <laughs> we called him senior. He was from Spain and he, English was like his sixth language and he still spoke it better than we did. But uh, he was, I said, all right, senior, you're the king, but you're just a powerless figurehead. I call the shots here. So at, uh, you know, I was bold. Yeah. So I was 16 and wise and, uh, um, <laughs> handled all video concerns for a um, regional Catholic school with no money in the mid 90s. And so from there, there was a uh, well, there's the Cinnamons and Community Chorus. Uh, Cinnamons is a township I'm from in South Jersey. And one of the teachers in the high school there was in the uh, chorus. And so she went to Senor and said, hey, can you record this? So it, he says, well, do you want to do this? And I'm just like, well, he's like, you you get paid five bucks. I'm like, hmm, five bucks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's literally what it was. Uh, so they wanted it video recorded, but I wasn't really interested in, in that. I, I thought that audio would be better. And I had just saved up for a year. Uh, and I literally, I was 15 years old and I was delivering newspapers. And for a year, I didn't buy any candy, any records. I was very disciplined. And I bought this uh, 1968, um, no, it was a 71. It was a 71 Revox A77 tape machine, which I still have on the other side of the room here. And so it's, it was a, a serious uh, consumer machine. Uh, it was kind of a machine used to play demos for record people back in the day. It was made from December of 67 all the way until 80, I think. There were, there's tens of thousands of them out there. They're around 50 or 60 cycles. Um, they have a voltage selection, selection for five different voltages, so literally anywhere in the world. I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many of these. They're very, very well built. There's no integrated circuits. So it's all discrete uh, components. They're real easy to work on, interchangeable parts. Um, anyway, so, um, I didn't know that at the time, I just happened to see that one. And so it was before the internet, you know, way before eBay. So there's this thing in the Delaware Valley called trading times where it's like a, basically a, a Facebook marketplace that is in a little book that you pick up at the Seven Eleven, and it's just people, people put it in there and it's like classified ads for, you know, here's a book with people's junk in it. And so we found the machine in there. Um, then we drove over to Pennsylvania, fought our way through awful, awful traffic. I still remember that trip because my dad was just. He was just, he was mad. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Ah, it ain't worth it. Uh, so anyway, so I had this machine, and I wanted a machine that held the larger reels, like the uh, the ten and a half inch reels. I have one around right, right over there. Uh, here, hold on. Since I am Mr. Analog, I'll grab it. Yeah. So I wanted a machine that took these reels. So I had to spend a little more for it. But anyway, I ended up. They still wanted the video recorded, so I I hired my buddy Mike. Uh, who went to a different school to do the video. And I think I paid him $2 to do it. <laughs> so, then I, And then I kept three and I ended up selling 45 copies of that. And I sold them for uh, five bucks a piece. So, you know, now I'm into like triple digit dollars here. I'm 16 years old, you know, this is 25 years ago. So that's so much money. I don't know what to do with it. Um, but I realized that the, I mean, the money was great, but the process was greater. Uh, and just, uh, I, I started out with the, with the idea that it's live to two, Mix on the fly. That's it. That's the way it was supposed to be. And uh, I've, I've changed my mind, uh, obviously, over the years. But that's really how how I started on that road. And then uh, so I made a little money and I thought, well, OK, now I'll take that money and reinvest. And so the next time I bought better tapes and then uh, so I, I recorded for this course four or five times, I think. And uh, they were just miserable old buzzards. I just I hated them. They were awful. They're high maintenance. They're just they're <laughs> just they were obnoxious and just like um, folks here in Nashville sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was just a bunch of grumpy old people who just didn't understand, you know, how much work it took to do these things, and they just were impatient. And you know, each one 
each person wanted it edited a little differently. And I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. Like, I'm not going to make 45 different versions of this. Forget that. So, uh, but then, you know, like next time, you know, I'd buy a microphone and then I'd make a little more and I'd buy something else. And so now uh, the uh, 25 years later, I have the, uh, you know, this empire of, uh, of gear. <laughs> uh, no, but it just, it started out as a, as an offhand comment in, uh, in high school. And Senior had a way of um, talking you into things. Uh, and so he, uh, I just happened to be the guy walking by when he nabbed me for it. And it's like, ugh, I didn't really want to at first, but then it, it turned out to be uh, starting me on this road. And so along with this tape machine, I, um, I learned how to, and I taught myself how to work on it and how to calibrate it and fix it and you know, keep it running. And, and it, there's a certain lore to that, uh, like uh, fixing an old car, you know, that type of thing, keeping it running yourself and uh, so there's the uh, story of the beginning. <laughs> That's cool. Well, let's talk about the, you know, because obviously with digital, the whole mindset of having to get it right the first time, because you only got two tracks to record to, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. According to this tape, it's not as easy to edit on tape as it is digital, obviously. Now, if you mm -hmm. know what you're doing, yeah, there's some things you can do to finagle the performance and splice things together and whatnot. But uh, give us a little bit of your mindset when you're maybe when you're setting up setting up the mics maybe if you have the opportunity to um kind of coach what, what's your process what do you go through oh well, like if i'm just keeping an analog i guess yeah, uh, but then yeah track, what's your yeah. what's your thought process there well i started when i started with this one machine i liked it so much that i stumbled upon a second one not too long after that so i had, I had two of the same machine except with, they were physically the same but one ran at a higher speed than the other but it was the same track width and so they were compatible. So what I would do is I would do live to two of the whole band um, and everybody would just play together and I would mix it on the fly to the first two track machine. And that, I'd usually use seven and a half inches per second, uh, half track. And then to do any overdubs, because there's only one shot at overdubs. So that's part of it is I'd tell them, okay, you got a plan. You get, you know, your bass tracks and then you get one overdub and that's it. So we have to plan accordingly um to get everything in that you think you're going to want so then uh, you know high school bands are not as good as other bands <laughs> so <laughs> you know somebody chipped somebody chipped a note or you know hit a, a you know a, a snare late well start all over everybody starts all over and so it was a lot of takes and some of them you know we get through and it would be 85 percent good and that's well that that's as good as it's going to be so right uh, so then i would actually play that tape back through my mixer and so i would just pan it hard left and right uh i had yeah it was a soundcraft um spirit um i let it out to somebody and they blew it up <laughs> just a couple years ago uh, it was a 12 track or 12 channel i should say it had phantom power and it had one phantom power button so either all of the inputs had it or none of them had it so um yeah, so but it had some stereo return, so it was like one fader, but it was a stereo input. And so then I'd put the the first tape machine in there, and then okay, then you'd have twelve inputs of overdubs, and so the first tape would be playing. You'd be playing along with the band. So like I did one where it was drums, bass, guitar, um, and then we did an overdub where a guy played keyboard and sang at the same time and mixed it together. And the final was being created at that moment. That's and that was it, you know. And if you didn't like the mix, you had to go back and redo the overdub performance. So there was a lot at stake. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, they can mess up because you can mess up as well. I mean, you could have the vocal right. too hot or any aspect of the mix right. too low or too hot. And like, well, right. sorry, guys, we uh, you could just blame it on one. It was like, oh, the bass player screwed up again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Not telling that, tell that it was something that you might have done or whatever else. But Right. It, you know, sometimes like the phone would ring and it's like, well, I guess we got to start the whole thing over. Uh, you know, if you hear a noise in the background or. Uh, and I had no dynamic uh, processing whatsoever. I had rudimentary EQ uh, where it was just high, low, and then a sweepable mid. But I didn't really know what those frequencies were. And that was it. I mean, there was no other processing I had. And I still have a couple of those tapes around. And you know, even listening back to them, considering what I had at the time, because I only had two microphones. So I did a drum overhead, and I just kind of like tucked them between, like sort of like under the cymbals, but pointing towards the snare and it was like two you know realistic mics that my dad lent me and then the bass was direct and even the guitar was direct out of the pedal oh, wow. um yes wow <laughs> yeah so it's it, like uh, kind of stuff right there you know just yeah i just yes <laughs> no um uh, yeah so that was 
how I started. And uh, yeah, then eventually I got a Tascam um, eight track half inch machine, which I still have, and I still use it pretty regularly. I, I just did a project with it uh, a couple months ago. Uh, and that that just opened up so many possibilities. But um, still, though, I didn't have any sort of processing other than really rudimentary EQ. But at least, you know, bass no player hits. Reduction, no noise reduction or anything. Uh, actually, this has DBX1, does have DBX1, um, which gives you an extra 30 dB dynamic range okay. right. uh, with, with DBX1. So you can actually, and I have measured it, I have uh, programs for that, you get uh, 90 dB. So you get 16 bits dynamic range. Uh, from a tape and uh, you know that ain't bad I mean the DBX does color the sound but it's a you have to it's another one of those compromises where you have to think well would I rather it color the sound a little or you know is it going to be are we going to have detail bur buried in the noise floor uh, and if I'm doing a loud rock band I won't use it because then you know a little over modulation is a good thing and um, but if I'm doing like a choir or a you know an acoustic type thing I'll probably use the uh, noise reduction but yeah and then if it, it also has a good um, cell sync function so if you know you want to punch a, a bass part you just drop that one track into record, and then you, you can you can fix it that way without having to start the whole takeover. Yeah. Right. That's cool. Uh, so let's go from so that was your high school years, pretty mm -hmm. much, right? So what led you to uh, your next stage of higher learning? Well, my dad kept pushing me to be an electrical engineer, and he always hated his job. And I'm like, Dad, why are you pushing me to do something that you don't want to do? Uh, <laughs> And I just I had no interest in that at all. And but the thing is, I really didn't have an I didn't have a lot of interest in um, really doing much of anything. I had some mental health problems, and I just had, sometimes I had trouble getting through the day, honestly. And uh, but I found the recording program at MTSU uh, and um, made my way out there. And I spent three semesters there, and then I actually went back home to South Jersey for a year. That's actually when I got the Tascam Forty Eight. It was February of two thousand. Because I remember I drove out to Pittsburgh to get it. It was like five degrees and windy that day, and we were driving over the mountains. It was um, it was it was cold. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a case of I really didn't know what I knew that I really enjoyed that the recording stuff, and I didn't really have a better idea. I definitely didn't want to do anything like accounting or you know, that. Just to me, I would rather live, you know. I don't know, under a bridge or something and <laughs> do accounting. And now I'm grateful. I'm grateful that people do that and enjoy it. But I just, I, that wasn't really for me. And it's funny though, I wouldn't consider myself a creative person at all, but um, I just enjoyed the process and the sense of accomplishment of getting something reasonable with such limited resources. You know, I've heard it said that art thrives on restriction. And so having, you know, having things to overcome with my limitations in experience and technology uh, has, uh, you know, there was a certain thrill to that, and I, I guess I got really frustrated at first with at MTSU because it was just all high school too, basically. You know, I had to take stuff that I took in ninth grade, and I'm like, what am I even doing here? Which is one of the reasons I took a year off. But um, now, when I came back, uh, you know, I met some good friends, finally got into the program, and then you know, we did that not before noon project, uh, which still, you know, I think in in any given person, there they have moments in their life when they actually exceed their own potential. I can only think of two or three for myself, but that project was one of them for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what year was that? Was that, uh, that was Oh three. That was Oh three. Yeah. It was January 22nd was the first take of, or the, when we did the demos. And then, um, August 22nd was when the quarter inch final was done. So yeah. <laughs> what was, uh, explain to the uh, listening audience what that, what the project started out as and what it turned into. Okay. Well, one of the advanced classes at MTSU was called uh, 467, uh, 467 Studio Production, and the assignment was to find your own talent, um, pick, uh, I guess, three songs, and bring two of them to completion. Uh, or No, it ended up being one because we had a really lousy teacher who was getting fired, and she just made it one. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she was late, and, and it's funny, in class, the first half of class was Bruce's vinyl time. I would bring records, and we would listen to them right in class. Um, so... I got a first. I got a lead on a band called Boogie Chain, and uh, my one of my roommates, Scott Larson, had worked with them, and it was some cool sounding stuff. But uh, I don't know. Once I met them, like they were just total stoners, and uh, just not something I was real interested in uh, dealing with. And we, it was just kind of mutual that we didn't want to work with each other. I, I don't know what the problem was with me, but I don't know maybe a bad breath or something. But then I got a lead from a fellow whose name I don't remember. He said, "Oh, you should check out Not Before Noon. They're having a band practice at their house on like Tuesday at." 9 p.m. or something. I'm like, hmm, I wonder how. You, I don't even know how he knew that, but I went over there, 
And uh, it was out of character for me, but I just walked right into their house. I didn't, I mean, I knocked on the door. There's no answer. I'm like, I'm just going to go in anyway. And hopefully this is the right house and I don't get gunned down. So <laughs> I went in and um, Wayne Key uh, is the leader of the band. He actually is in Proto Men now. So he's a, he's a superstar. He made the big time. Uh, but uh, he, um, he was uh, and still is a really, really cool guy, very talented. And it was, I would describe their stuff as wuss rock, kind of like uh, Counting Crows type of sound, uh, where it's just good, basic rock, I guess. And so anyway, I found these guys and I explained, hey, you know, I need a, <laughs> I need a song for a project. And, and they said, yeah, yeah, we're interested in doing that. And then surprisingly, like Wayne, he showed up on time every time. He was never late. He didn't miss a session. He was there every time working on this, this song. And, um, he had a, one or two bandmates that were a little less than reliable, and he still managed to get them there and get all the parts done. And so really, it all to, to answer the question, the whole thing started as one song for a school project. But I worked at the studio maintenance shop at the time, and I had the key and access to the book or the program that booked the studio. So I could see, I could see what um, blocks of time were not allocated. So we could just sneak in under the cover of darkness or you know, go on the weekend when there's no other session uh, <laughs> going on. And we did six more songs and uh, decided to uh, re- release it. Um, and the the release show was kind of the band's breakup show. I think that's the last show they played together, as I recall. But yeah, it all started with uh, one song, and then we just decided to go with it because we had the resources, we had the time, and we had the tape. We, you know, that stuff was already bought, so we thought, yeah, why not? Right. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I had the pleasure of assisting and just being a fly on the wall. And <laughs> well, I think that, you... I mean, that's really. I, I tell people that I didn't, I don't have a recording degree, but it's almost like I got one through like osmosis almost <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, or like, you know, just knowing people and being always in the studio, whether it was your mm-hmm. sessions or uh, uh, tons of other people I knew at the time that were having sessions and, Oh, Nathan, go grab some cables or set up a microphone or, Hey, I need you to go in and play some guitar for us. So you can get some levels. It's like, all right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that was the that was the guy with the backpack and the classical guitar in one hand and the trombone in the other doing the music thing on the sure. other side of campus. And you know, thankfully, you know, I met a great group of guys like you and uh, so many others that just uh, allowed me to kick along and you know. Mm. Well, you, so. I, I wouldn't be. I certainly wouldn't be the engineer I am without that project. And one of the things I learned because by the time. We got to the end. You know, it took 11 semesters. At the beginning, there were about 1,700 of us in the program. By the end, 11 semesters later, only about 50 of us actually graduated with this degree. There was a lot of people that got weeded out. And but one of my problems was that I think I was the only one of that group that was not a musician, that had no talent for music whatsoever. And I struggled terribly to communicate with musicians. And that's where you came in. And I learned, you know, good second engineer and or producer, uh, it, that's, that you got to have that. And so um, I learned a lot from you. From osmosis i guess same thing just because i could tell me and wayne were just we, we were getting real short with each other and it just because we couldn't communicate and then you would just step in and straighten everything out and then we'd, <laughs> <laughs> then we both we'd both be happy so yeah that's it's good to and we still uh, work together today so it's, yeah it's a good relationship that we have there right right absolutely and uh i'll have to see you sometime soon about an illegal back alley haircut because uh okay. yeah they're all closed around here but <laughs> anyway um but let's go on to, um, you know, obviously you're big into analog, but now we're in this world of, you know, digital and you know, all that. So tell us about your digital setup and okay. all that. How it all okay. up in your workflow. Okay. Yeah. I had up until recently uh, the three RME Fireface uh, converters. They do, they do um, A channels, A to D, D to A. Um, and so I'd have 24, I'd have 24 tracks. And they sounded pretty good, uh, but I was they were recommended to me by an engineer friend of mine, um, Justin Cordelou, who works in Nashville. Um, he's the real deal. You know, he's worked with, uh, he just did a song with Paul McCartney. He did all the Alice Cooper re-records, uh, the Fish uh, Fuego record. He did that. Um, anyway, I call him whenever I want recommendations on gear because he's, he, I, he may not have specific, um, you know, he nobody can know everything about all the gear out there, but uh, he would give me some places to start. So I said, well, you know, here's my budget. And he said, well, for price to quality ratio, he's like, you're at a weird, an interesting price point, but here's something I recommend. So, you know, I, I checked them out and I really, really liked them. Um, but um, that's the RME, the RME Fireface 800. And they're, they're not made anymore. I mean, you can get them used for 500 ish dollars. Uh, I think new, they were close to two grand a piece. Uh, that was like close to 15 years ago. I think they were one of the first converters that would actually do 176.4 and 192K sample rates. But, um, 
but okay, but here's the interesting thing. I've, I'm a firm believer in the importance of clocking. So I actually have a benchmark ADC one. It's just two, it's just two channels, A to D. Uh, it's not a D to A. It's just two channels, A to D. It's two grand for two channels, but it also generates word clock, which claims to be femtosecond accurate. So that's 10 to the minus 15th of a second. Um, so, you know, it, it'll send a signal by BNC in a word clock or through SPDIF. And then the nice thing about the Fireface 800 is that you can tell it to observe a different clock. So I'll say, you know, look at word and then all three of them I can have ganged together from the same clock. And that greatly improved the sound with the same converter. So, you know, there's a there's a tip there. No matter what converters you have, if they can accept word clock and you have something that can generate it, put that together. I think you'd be surprised. But anyway, uh, but I was ready the word clock and the benchmark. I mean, what is it doing? What is the clocking doing for your sound? Yeah, it what the clock does. And it's a it's essentially a very high frequency square wave. And it it basically tells the converter when to take a sample, you know, when to take a snapshot of the waveform at that point in time. So it very, very narrowly defines time. And so all the three converters running together uh, will know they'll take their samples at exactly the same time on all the converters. And so that will help eliminate things like, um, um, well, it's called word clock jitter. Yeah, it, it's jitter. And I have to draw you a diagram I have to draw a diagram uh, on that, but you can look it up online, you know, what jitter is and how it works. But that, that's what good clocking does for you. Um, and so you can uh, avoid some, you know, upper harmonic distortion that way and just like a diffuse hashy sound. You can you can mitigate by good clocking. So yeah. I, I guess for those who are just starting out recording, you know, I would say it's perfectly fine to have, you know, a decent middle of the road. You know, interface just to get all your ins and outs going and really right. learn the concepts of like microphone placement, getting a good take, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Sure. But would you, would you get the Bruce's level here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, you, if you don't go that far, you know, there are other things that you can improve on in your signal chain that will just get you that last, what, 10% or whatever. Does that make sense, Bruce? Yeah, I would How say. Is this like, is this, is it going to make for, you know, Let's say even the average home recording guys, like should they should they be upgrading their converters, and investing two thousand dollars into their studio, or is that clocking? Other well, I have a policy of whatever the budget of your studio is, fifty percent should be converters. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar studio, you should have fifty thousand dollar converters. And I know that sounds like well, you know that's a lot of money, but I look at it this way: that it's not a link in the chain; it's a bunch of pieces of glass. So you have. You know, here's a piece of glass microphone placement. There's another one of, you know, tuning your stupid guitar, uh, you know, checking for grounding issues, you know, microphones, mic pre's, converters. And you stack all these things, these pieces of glass in front of each other, and you want each one to be as clean as possible so that, you know, when you look through it, you don't see anything except, you know, the other side, you know, the music. So it's not a case of, you know, a broken link makes the whole thing bad. No, it's just, you know, you want each piece of glass as clean as possible. And so if you have one dirty one and a lot of clean ones, yeah, you know, you could live with that. Or if you got all of them that are pretty clean, you can live with that too. Uh, but uh, something that I underestimated for a long time was just a microphone placement, tuning your instrument, and, you know, getting the take. And it's funny how much, um, like, producing and engineering are not as, uh, I'm sure you know this, they're not as separate as they may sound. <laughs> Every engineer is a producer in some way or another. Uh, it's all, you know, it's part, it's part uh, art, part science, part customer service. So... Because it's almost, I mean, as you record, let's just take the not for, before noon sessions, for instance. I mean, as you record this band, I, I guess it, it happens a little bit because you said you're not really that musical. But to me, when, when I sit down and hear a song or even just write out a number chart and I can see the arrangement on paper, to me, like, yeah, I know how to push buttons. I know how to move faders. I know how to set up mics and all that stuff. But if you don't have the end goal in mind and you're just a guy pushing mm -hmm. buttons. Yeah, you know, you're stumbling around. Yeah, and that's what you're saying. It's like you kind of right. have to wear the producer hat and the engineer hat to make sure you're getting the sound of the tracks, make sure you're getting the performances right. And then you're putting it, all that together to get the final sound. Yeah. It's just, if, you, if you got crap tracks, then the mix isn't going to matter. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. One is mixing very well-recorded tracks. So. Yeah, because if the music doesn't move you, then nothing else matters, I think. And, and that's part of where I struggle, and that's why I've had to humble myself and always try to find a good producer who can, you know, has that ear. Now I can hear if something's out of tune, usually, 
But I can't tell you. I'll just say, oh, well, that's wrong. But I can't tell you what it's supposed to be. I can just tell you what it's not supposed to be. But <laughs> Led Zeppelin record, right? Yeah, I just can't stand Led Zeppelin <laughs> for many reasons. But one of which is, if, no, if Jimmy Page ever learned to tune a guitar, they might have had something. But maybe not. <laughs> I, I know that's heresy, but uh, I just am not a fan of Zeppelin. I think they're well. I digress. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I brought that up. But I know you you uh, don't appreciate their uh, their tuning skills. So no. But I like the way this stuff is engineered, though. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. And I've I've met Eddie Kramer and Chris Huston, who have uh, engineered Zeppelin too. Well, there were four guys total, uh, but Eddie and uh, Chris did most of that record, and I did, got to talk to them both at length. And Eddie, especially, total class, total class. Like no, like, and he's the real deal. I mean, he is the engineer alive on Earth today, in my opinion, at least for this genre, you know, of uh, really of rock. He is the guy. I mean, he engineered the Woodstock Festival in 1969. Um, you know, he worked with The Who, Zeppelin, Hendrix. Uh, I don't know, that's just off the top of my head. But um, in fact, he helped me uh, work on my FX 440 uh, two track, uh, half, uh, yeah, two track tape machine. That's another story, though. But uh, yeah, so I guess, yeah, it's, it's hard to know where to necessarily put your money in terms of gear. But um, that, that's, yeah, half your money on converters if you're going to go the digital route. And so, you know, when I started doing more digital stuff, I actually upgraded to a uh, UAD Apollo X16, which it had, it's a Thunderbolt 3 only, and it also has DSP in it for the UAD plugins. Now, I don't, I have mixed feelings about it because it sounds really good, 16 in, 16 out, but um, dealing with UAD is a nightmare. Uh, I had to, um, it came defective right out of the box, and it took me like three months to get an exchange. And ultimately, they paid for everything, but. Um, their customer service hours are like from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Tuesday and Thursday. It's like, what? I got to take a day off of work to call you people. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend UAD, but they, it, it sounds great. Uh, they are the best converters I've had, other than the benchmark, which is just two tracks. But um, are you sending outputs from the UAD to your desk? Yes. So how, yeah, when how, I how does that workflow work for you as far as uh, your analog desk and your digital, you know, right? Stuff? I think of the digital part as i think of it as a transport meaning i sort of treat it like a tape machine where i don't mix in the box as they say the computer records the tracks and then plays them back so each track gets its own d to a converter and then it uh, comes to my analog mixer and then i mix it on the faders to a um a quarter inch uh two track machine usually at 15 inches per second sometimes 30 usually 15 uh, no noise reduction really is required uh, in fact, I don't use it. I don't need to. Uh, modern tapes are good enough that you don't need to for that track configuration. But uh, yeah, the computer I use, um, I put all my plugins there. Like if I got to do EQ or compression, you know, a little reverb, whatever. And I, I'm, I'm somewhat cheating. It's like, well, is that, you know, you look at a real Fairchild 660 compressor. Well, you got to be able to shell out 30 grand if you want an original, if you want a real one. Well, I can buy the plugin. Well, I bought the plugin for, you know, $200. And it's like, you know, and, and I read up online, oh, it's only about 80 to 85% of what the real one sounds like. It's like, well, yeah, but it costs 99.9% less. So, you know, I figure 85, 85% of something is better than 100% of nothing. <laughs> so uh, I, I do my uh, effects there, editing, and then I just push play and it plays through the track or you plays through the song, sending all the tracks, each individual track through its own converter. And then yeah, I sum it as a voltage. So it's an analog mixing process. It's not crunched in the box as a number. It's not mathematically derived. It's um, electromagnetically derived, I guess you could say. And then uh, that, that two-track tape really has, uh, I think, a much more musical essence than um, you know just pushing render. I, I never liked that. Now, I'm a big fan of Reaper, uh, which thank you again. Uh, that's your 100% right. Uh, I don't see any reason why anybody would use any other program. I really don't, uh, especially Pro Tools, because it's just, well, I don't need to sit here and dog Pro Tools. But <laughs> um, no, it's great for editing. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, I use Reaper for my uh, editing and, and effects and all that. And so, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my workflow. It's multi-stage. Certainly takes longer than just uh, now. If you you're know. mixing a band, for instance, let's say you recorded a band in Reaper, like through the UA uh, interface, you got all mm -hmm. your tracks, and then you send all your tracks out to the board, and you mix whatever. Mm -hmm. Now. You setting your faders at zero and like technically mixing in the box was just setting your faders at zero on the board, or do you actually move the faders on the board to create the mix, and then in turn printing to the tape? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Uh, typically, I set them. 
I'll set my faders at zero and then do the automation in Reaper um, and sum it that way. But sometimes if, uh, well, let's say I like my automation, but just the whole track can come down a little. Well, then I'll just, you know, I'll just move a fader down. So it's kind of both, but more so in the computer will I handle automation and editing and that sort of thing. I'm just thinking of like recalls or, hey, can you bring the vocal up or, you know, mm-hmm. kinds of stuff the artist will request about the mix like a month later. Like, oh, by the way, can you bring up the hi-hat? It's like, mm-hmm. no, I will not bring it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, I got everybody's got mixed feelings, of course, about their education. But one thing I definitely can say for MTSU that they drilled into our heads was documentation. You know, you got a, the, the semester project. If your documentation wasn't in order, you could be starting at a C minus before they even listen to your track. And so I really took that along with me and I write down everything. So even if a month goes by, a year, whatever, I have a way where I can look back and I'll know exactly what I got to do. And and in fact, uh, well, interesting story. Well, I think it's interesting anyway, was I recorded I recorded a, a recital for a friend of mine at University of Wisconsin. Uh, here in Madison, and it was a full band. He's a jazz major. He played saxophone. He actually played a lot of different things, but he had a full band with him. And so we we multi-tracked that. I think it, it came out to uh, 16 tracks. And so I save everything, like every single track, every single take. I figure meg- megabytes are cheap. That's another personal oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, policy. Should and so oh, with that, should be a t-shirt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I couldn't handle the kids. So. Uh, Anyway, I, I had my documentation and I just stored everything away and I delivered the mix. He was happy, but I just kept everything. And so then a couple of years go by and we have a mutual friend who's working on a record. He's like, oh, I heard that recital, um, but I got some ideas for that song. So, you know, Wilder Deets is the fella in question. And Alex Charlin is the one whose recital it was. So Wilder goes to Alex, hey, you know, can I build on this song? And Alex is like, yeah, sure. Well, I still had the original multitrack. So we took those multitracks and built a whole new song around it. And then we could do a whole new mix. So it wasn't just like, uh, you know, sampling like a lot of the, the hip hop fellas do. And um, so, yeah, good documentation. Oh, that's that's a big deal. You know, as far as engineering success, production success. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of the workflow. It, it slows you down in the short term, but in the long term, you're always better off, I say. And what are you what are you writing down exactly? It was like track one was kick, track two was snare. This is where I had later on the mix. I mean, what what exactly are you documenting there? Well, I will put the um, the name of the person, the instrument, uh, the track number, the type of microphone I used. Um, then well, I sound silly, but the name of the song, you know, because if you got a bunch of tracks that just say guitar one, well, what song does that go with? I mean, your your session file will know, but if for some reason you have to substitute files in, and I've had to do that, um, or something, you know, if your session file gets corrupted or lost, well, then you're up a creek sorting all that out so when i actually put the name of the track in i'll call it you know um wilder piano left you know uh royer 121 take one that's the name of the track and that way when it records it names that file all that and then i'll always know well that's what that is without too much ambiguity uh and then when i store everything after it's all recorded i have a file structure where i'll have like the name of the artist and then uh i'll have like um You'll say like, you know, 2019 underscore 01 January 21 underscore and then the name of the record. And then under that folder will be multi-tracks, mixes, masters, session files. And I always have it in the same order so that I know, I, I, I'll know, well, if I'm going to look for it here, well, if it's not there, I don't have it. But then I can find it easily if I need it. Um, yeah. And then I also have a, I have a server set up. Well, two, actually, one in my basement and the one at my brother's place in California. So I back up all my multi-tracks mixes everything so i have one set of everything in california and then one here and that way nothing's going to get lost that's another thing it's i recommend is get a like a network attached storage box one that holds like two hard disks and set them up as a mirror you know one plus one equals one because i had a case where hard disk went bad well i didn't lose anything because i had a mirror of it well you know again megabytes are so cheap get a second hard disk for 150 bucks and you know do it that way but i guess that's what i mean by documentation and saying organized no, that's great. Uh, I've I've definitely lost my butt like twice over the years. Um, the hard drive went bad, and I was like, "Oh, oh no, <laughs> oh expletive!" Like all the uh, I hate to say this on the podcast, but all the feedback revival stuff uh, we record over the years, like it's gone. Like we have the, oh. the masters, we have all the right. mixes, and thankfully I did uh, share some multi tracks with some other people. 
for them to uh, use as teaching tools, like on okay. and other places. So I have like maybe five, five or six multi-tracks of some of the songs, like six songs out of 27 or 28 songs we did total. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just sad, but. Uh, yeah. But oh. I, I have a saying though, is like nothing says a mix is done like losing a hard drive. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't go back to Korean mix it now. I guess that 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 solo, that guitar solo, that was a little too loud. I was like, yeah, you know what? It wasn't that bad. <laughs> you can't fix it. You can't go back and change it. Right, right. So it's like, all right, it is what it is, you know? Unless mm -hmm. you want to go back and re-record everything, which is impossible. It's not going to happen. Right. And it's so. going to be the same. Yeah, right. Okay, well, the hard way is the best way to learn. Isn't that the truth? I mean, learn. Now, this is this is hilarious. You might get a kick out of this. The, the level of knowledge I have when I first started recording back in like 99, 2000, somewhere around there, I had my, uh, I'll talk about this like in full length on another podcast, probably, probably, but it was a Tascam Porter 2 studio. It's a four track uh, cassette. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started recording on that. I even had it at MTSU. I would go to the, the practice rooms in the music building and set up a little faux recording kind of thing going on in there and lay down tracks and stuff. But anyway, I would record on my mom's computer, which is just like a basic Dell PC from mm -hmm. 1997 or something, you know. Right. And the knowledge I had at the time, when I had a, a, a message come up saying, hey, your, your hard drive is full or your audio folder is full, that in my mind was like, all right, I'm going to go to all the games on the computer, delete them. <laughs> I'll start deleting like random files. It's like, oh, I got a clear space on the computer, not knowing that all the little tidbits of audio I was recording was being stored in a centralized folder, audio folder, somewhere on the computer that was magical to me. I was like, I don't know where all this stuff is going, but yet it's telling me that my audio folder is full. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know a whole lot back then. <laughs> Oh, well, so if, first... you were, if you just came home from a music store with your first microphone and your first audio interface and you're hooking everything up to a computer, not even knowing what, you know, where to put things, just know that, hey, you got to start somewhere yeah. and you're going to learn one way or another. You know, whether I mean, right. now we have YouTube, you can just type in your question on YouTube or Google and you'll mm -hmm. get like 50 different videos on people showing you how to hook things up and whatever. Else. Right. But, you know, obviously back in the early days of our early days we didn't have all that you know we had to just figure it out <laughs> that's right and hey you know my first my very first recording was august of 94 i did a, a thunderstorm i recorded a thunderstorm in uh, in four channel and like i don't i look i uh, accidentally erased over part of that tape or i re recorded over it and of course you know it's gone it's just like you know the tape you make a bad punch that's it i mean it's lost immediately right <laughs> you know there's no undo or clearing space it's like well it's like, well, like I always say, though, at the same time, you know, when the light is red and there's the smell of iron oxide in the air, you know, you're getting it. You know, everything's OK. But, yeah, especially you know, well, one of the reasons why I was into analog so big and I still am um, is that uh, you know, in the early days of multi-channel audio, computers just weren't fast enough. You know, even in the late 90s, early zeros, we pretended they were, but it never worked right. You know, how many times did you hear guys grumbling about oh, the Pro Tools rig is down again? Oh, I lost my snare track. And well, it just wasn't it wasn't really good enough mm -hmm. and, and it really didn't sound like good i mean converters were just dreadful they just didn't didn't sound good at all even the nice ones that mtsu had those um pr they weren't prism it doesn't matter anyway they they spent like eight grand on eight channels and uh yeah they were okay but uh, compared to that studer a827 they weren't even close so yeah <laughs> there's something uh if you ever watched any steve albini interviews or you know, just heard him talk at all about his analog process. He's, I mean, he's to the mindset of like, you know, digital may not always be there, but if you've got that tape in your hand, you can always put it on a, on a machine, mm -hmm. run the tracks through and like you have that performance. Like, yeah, yeah, like, it's on there. It's on there. It's like, it's not going anywhere. Right. You know? Right. No, absolutely. And in a sense, I try to, I somewhat treat the computer that way. Like I don't like that whole thing of, Oh, we'll fix it later. No, I don't subscribe to that at all. Even though it's a computer, well, I'll say, I'll say, do it again. I'm like, let's punch it. It's no, we're not going to fix it later. I don't. And I, they're like, Oh, can you tune that? Nope. I don't even have that. I don't tune anything. First of all, I don't know how to use it, but I categorically refuse to use auto tune. And, 
yeah, it's part of it, you know, for that reason. But uh, but yeah, I, there is something. I think that's why vinyl has has come back so strong because people like to own something, like to, they like to have it. And in fact, hold on, my uh, kind of a dream came true. This is uh, something that I recorded of a local band in Madison. I don't know if you can really. It's shiny. Wilder Deeds Group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyway, something I recorded finally pressed on vinyl. The lighting in here sucks, but um, you can see my my little logo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and Tim uh, did some uh, help me with some overdubs, but so his name is on here as well. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's it's a similar thing. At least for me, it's it's emotional. I admit, you know, the, it's the tangibility of you know saying you know here's the final right here. It's not just in a box somewhere. Uh, yeah, I think I gotta... the reason why vinyl has come roaring back is in the world of, you know, ones and zeros and you release a song to Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, whatever else, as long as you pay your 10 bucks a month, you can stream any song that was ever created technically, mm-hmm. you know, anytime you want, but you don't really own that song. You know, you just right. had, you just paid your 10 bucks a month. To be you a rent it. Yeah. You rent the music basically. But when you go buy that record, like you have purchased that record, your money went directly to the artist, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Better chance of that. Yeah. yeah. However much went to it. And you got something in your hands now that you can throw on a record player, just sit back with a, your favorite beverage right. or whatever else, a companion, and just listen to the music, you know, and just mm-hmm. enjoy. And, and look through I, the artwork. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at the artwork. And I want to talk to you about. Um, your Friday night listening nights and kind of how that started and uh, kind of what the criteria is for your music selections. Okay. No, thank you. That's a good question. It started with, or it was inspired by, I'll say, the listening night and MTSU. So the best projects of the year or of the semester uh, were all played at listening night. Um, It was after hours in the studio or one of the classrooms next to the studio, and they have these uh, boxer speakers. They're like $60,000 a pair. And okay. so the, each tr- yeah, each um, class would select one project. So you might be one out of 30, uh, would select one project, and then it would get played at listening night. And th- the house was packed every time. You know, many, many people showed up. Um, they would just cram them in. It was very popular, very well attended. And for the record, I made it to listening night twice. So, uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know when I when I got there for the not before noon song, I showed up in a full suit, uh, you know, like a full three piece suit. And somebody says, "Why are you dressed like that?" I'm like, oh, "I gotta look as good as I sound." <laughs> so anyway, it was inspired by that. I thought, you know, maybe we should, I should do something like that. So I lived in Nottingham Apartments, right across um, the street near the borough. Actually, uh, what's I don't even know what the name of the street is now. It's like Greenfield, maybe. It doesn't matter. Anyway, it's behind the borough. I don't even know if that's still there, but. So it was Friday night, 8 p.m. It was just, it was just on every week, uh, where, where you would show up every single week. I think I can count the number of times on one hand in a year that you didn't make it out there for listening night. So Friday at eight, you just show up, listen to records, argue over the content, the engineering. Sometimes there'd be themes. A lot of other people would come and go. Um, we got a girl there once. Remember Laura Whitson showed up that one time. Yeah. I just heard from her recently actually, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, so it started with that and, then uh, after college, my life became extremely disorganized, and we would need a five-hour podcast for that. But um, uh, anyway, when I finally made my way to Wisconsin, you know, skipping over a two-hour explanation, I didn't really know anybody here. Well, no, I didn't know anybody here. Our closest family was in South Jersey, and um, you know, no friends, no family. We were on our own. And so uh, this church that I went to, I'm still going to actually, uh, St. Maria Goretti, and, and Tim goes to school there now. But they had this men's group. Come to, come to the men's group. I thought, all right, yeah, it might be a good place to meet people. So like 80 guys show up for this thing, and you know, you pass around the list, put your email on there, we'll let you know about events. Well, there were no more events. There was only one of this meeting, and nothing ever came of it. But I got a hold of that email list with the, you know, the 80-ish names on it. So I put out an email, come to listening night, Bruce's place, you know, Friday at 8. I even kept the time the same. <laughs> and so uh, two guys I never met before in my life show up at my door with records. Uh, one's Matt Hersher, whose birthday is today, by the way. And then Ken, yeah, I have, to, I have to give him a call. And then Ken Brown, both of whom, so I never met these guys before in my life. They show up at my door with records, and I'm still very close to them to this day. But I decided to get more serious about the theme, other than let's just show up and rock, uh, which is, you know, not a bad policy. It works. You know. <laughs> right. But so, like, okay, like, for example, one of the themes was uh, if you were a pro wrestler, what would your intro music be? 
Well, for me, it was Lay Your Hands on Me by Bon Jovi. Another one would be like um, covers that are better than the original, which, you know, it really invites controversy. Uh, so I, uh, which is good. You know, it's it's not politics. It's not real personal, but like arguing over music. I love it. Uh, in fact, I, um, I was a DJ on WSUM here in town and I did an, a theme of that on the radio. And so I did a, a Beatles song being covered by the Hollies and saying, well, this cover's better than the original. Well, I had somebody call up and vehemently disagree with me. And uh, I loved I, it. I loved it. The song, the song it was, was uh, If I Needed Someone. It was a, a Harrison song, actually. Uh, but the Hollies did it. I think they did way better. I'm not, like I always say, I like the 60s, but not the Beatles. 70s, but not Zeppelin. 90s, but not uh, Nirvana. Anyway, yeah, the Hollies is my 60s band all the way. That was Graham Nash's first band, by the way. But yeah, anyway, I've tried to, uh, this has been almost 10 years going now, and I've seldom repeated themes. I always seem to be able to come up with something. And then when they come to me, I write them down. I have like pieces of paper all over the house because I'll forget things so easily. Uh, so let's see, we just did... Um, like we've done uh, like geographic locations, songs of standard units of measure that are mentioned in a song. One of my favorites was songs whose title appear nowhere in the song. Kind of like, you know, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, you know, right. Dylan. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's the story with that. And uh, uh, it's still going strong. Well, not right now because everybody's staying home, but, you know. Right. right, right. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Though. I, was, I was thinking if there is a way to uh, almost do like a live stream. Or like you could pump, you could pipe in like high quality audio through the stream and like mm. whoever can, whoever in the world could listen. But I don't know if you would have like a copyright. Uh, it wouldn't be considered like mm. public performance or anything. So I don't know how that would work. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know that it would be able to be monitored in real time either because they don't know what song I'm going to play. But right. um, well, but then you know this podcast could get very political very quickly. So I'll just holster that right there. <laughs> I want to get into that. Uh, no, no, yeah. I never thought of that. Only a few episodes in, so don't shut me down just yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's yeah. cool. Well, let's go ahead, and uh, we've been talking uh, here for a little while, and let's go ahead and end the podcast with okay. a just like a round of like, you know, favorite microphones, favorite guitars, maybe amps, you know, stuff like that. So go ahead and uh, what's your favorite kind of mic to use in the studio? Um, or just live so, or just anything, really. It that's, okay, live KMS 105 by Neumann. It looks kind of like a, um, like that generic, you know, SM58 kind of shape, but it's phantom powered. It's capacitor. So, you know, it's condenser. It's not dynamic. So it has much cleaner highs, um, you know, tighter lows. Cause like the SM58 is pretty much the worst microphone ever made. Period. Uh, I, I like nothing about it whatsoever. And everyone uses it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yet it's everywhere. It's like, like the flu or something. But, uh, anyway, yeah, the, for, for onstage KMS 105 by Neumann. Uh, that's good for, um, for vocal, uh, for cabinet mic. Uh, you do not need another pop filter or, you know, like a fuzzy thing over it. It's got that built in there. Uh, that, and it's, and it's reasonably good for, um, for drums. I've used it even for recording. I've used it for snare actually. So it can deal with very high SPLs without distortion or damage. Right. Um, so on stage, that's the one. Um, now it's so hard to put it to one mic for everything, but if I had to really, if I could only have one, it would be this one. The AKG C414B uh, XL2 or the TL2 because they don't make the XL uh, correction. They don't make the TL2 anymore, which is what this is. I have two of these, and then I have two XL2s. Uh, these have four polar patterns, two pads, and two roll-offs. So um, they can deal with very high SPLs. So you could, I've even used them for kick drum. I mean, you've got to EQ the heck out of it, but the knob will turn far enough to get you something out of it. So um, that if I had to only have one, it would be that. That would be my answer. <laughs> That works. Uh, what about um, what's your favorite tape? Analog tape. Mm, I like. <sighs> it's hard to say again for different reasons. As far as I really like Ampex four nine nine, but first of all, they don't make it anymore. Second of all, it's not real re real reliable. You have to very carefully store it, otherwise it's going to rot. As far as modern tapes, I like um, the RMGI stuff is pretty good, or they're called Recording the Masters. It was BASF, then MTEC, then RMGI, uh, and now it's recording the masters. It just keeps changing names. But the um, the SM900 and SM911 are excellent, excellent tapes. Not a big fan of the ATR stuff, because not because of its sound, and I don't want to discourage anybody from trying it, but I noticed with my old tape machines, it really is difficult to calibrate the machine to work with it. It's funny, because like you'll adjust the bias, but then the 1K will drift. I'd have to draw you a diagram. But anyway, <laughs> the, yeah, the SM900 and uh, 911 are as far as available modern tapes. That's my vote. Yeah. Oh, 
that's cool. I am going to have a, on my website, I'm going to have a, a dedicated podcast page. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people say like, oh, check the show notes for this or that. Maybe you can send me some pictures of like your analog tape machines and like your, your uh, Soundcraft board or your Allen and Heath mm-hmm. and different stuff. And I can put that in the show notes and people can check that out. Cool. Yeah, I'd like um, that. Have you, have you tried the, uh, the UAD um, like tape emulation stuff? Yes, I... Thoughts on it? Generally positive. Obviously, you see the tape spinning on the screen. Like, mm-hmm. if you really push the, the input and output, you can hear it, like, you know, push back a little bit. Like, it's, it grits up. But yes. You, does, it, does it work? Do you feel the same? Do you get the same excitement as you, were, as you use, like, the real thing? Like, mm-hmm. what, what? Yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> but it's... I have the um, Studer A800 plugin as well as the... Um, uh, Studer J37, which that's made by Waves. The A800 is made by UAD. They're both pretty good. The A800, yes, it does um, simulate overmodulation reasonably well. And the controls are interesting. You can select four different tape types, three different tape speeds, five different correction, four different reference fluxivities. You can set the bias, the high frequency record EQ, low frequency play EQ, all the parameters that you would be able to adjust on an actual machine. You can fuss with on there to change the sound however you got to be like especially with the 800 you got to be careful with it because if you don't want it to overmodulate, like you got to really be careful about how hard you hit it because i was i did a session live it was um i record something called grace presents it's a thing in uh, madison so it's front of a live audience and so i'm doing all the tracks at once digitally and so then i put this plug in on every track just to mellow it out and you know analogize it i guess it's yeah. better than nothing, I figure. But I found that the singer was very dynamic. And so I kept, it was bumping, it was overmodulating um, on a vocal, which really doesn't sound good, especially this was like a really, like a high alto kind of voice in a bluegrass situation. Didn't sound good. So if you're going to use it for a sweetener, you got to be careful. You know, if you want to use it in its extremes for simulating overmodulation, yeah, I, I guess the answer is yes, I recommend it. Um, just wait till there's a sale because <laughs> normally it's like, it's expensive. I think it's like $300 or something. But, you know, every, a few times a year they have big sales or, you know, you'll get a, let's say you get on their mailing list or whatever. Well, you'll get an email pop in your box, say 50% off any plugin, you know, for 36 hours or whatever. Well, you know, then go check it out and check out the demo because they're fully functional for, I think, a week mm-hmm. if you've got a UAD card. So, uh, yeah, I recommend it, certainly. Uh, but as far as like a, a real A800 I would, uh, you know, it, it all comes down to money. I mean, even though the computer's way easier, just with my personal experience, I'd rather deal with the A800. But for the average guy, yeah, get the plug-in. Check it out. Yeah, it's worth checking out, certainly. They're, they're good enough. Plugins have come a long way in the past 10 years. And I would, none of you people out there in uh, internet land really know me, but that's a real bold statement for me to say something like that, that, <laughs> that plugins are are any good so well that's why i was interested you know having you on the podcast because because i i know you have i know your analog background but yet you still work in the digital realm today because it is easy you know you don't have to put the tape on and rewind mm-hmm. it up and all that stuff you can just open up a session in reaper arm your track start recording mm-hmm. you know uh, put whatever plugins you want on there and you're good to go so um it is convenient for sure yeah uh, it sounds like you use like you, know, like you said, you use Reaper more like a tape machine just right. to capture the performance, and then you use your desk and your physical tape to get get it down to your final two-track. Right, right. Uh, and right. and if, if it's a smaller session where I can use eight tracks or less, I'll do everything on my Tascam 48. And then uh, I recently did a project at uh, a place here in town where the, the entire day there were no computers at all at the, uh, at the location. I had six half-inch tapes. We did everything in eight tracks or less. And then I flew those tapes in to the computer when I got home just because I have more resources. You know, I don't have outboard compressors or EQs or anything like that. So, um, but I'll still use the tape machines as far as I can possibly use them and push that technology to as far as I can. And then I have to say, well, another case of, you know, do I want 80% of something or 100% of nothing? Um, So I've had to change my thinking on that. (laughs) That's great. Well, I think it's a a very helpful for, for, you know, beginners, amateurs, even professionals alike that, you know, only work in a certain frame of reference or a certain mindset to hear other people talk about their workflow. And mm-hmm. um, I would love, I mean, as you well know, I mean, I've had a few machines in the past and I just do not know how to work on them. So for me, it doesn't make sense for me to have analog sure. tape and all that stuff. Cause I, 
I don't know. I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to use it. Yeah. But I, don't to, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to keep it working to where mm-hmm. it's it's pristine. It, it functions as it should. So I'm very. I mean, my whole studio is digital. The only time I mm-hmm. use a microphone is for acoustic guitar and vocals. Mm-hmm. I use a uh, um, Superior Drummer for all my drums or Tune Tracks. You know the Tune Tracks products. I have Easy Drummer, Superior Drummer. I got the Headrush pedal board. I got the gig board here on my desk. Mm-hmm. Like I Let's see. I, I can't handle any of that. That's here. so far beyond me. <laughs> I can't yeah, handle yeah. any of that. Yeah, uh, but it's just like if you want a quick, you know, if you want a fully produced song, I don't need to hire out drummers and bass players and guitar players to come in and do that. I just do it all here myself. Sure. I have all the tools right here in front of me, like I can literally reach to my left, <laughs> my right. Like I can turn here, I can play drums, I can turn here, I can play piano. I got my guitar and bass stuff right here in front of me. And I have the the Presonus Studio Live 16 board with all the flying faders to, you know, get mm, that is cool. different <laughs> levels. So, yeah, so it's just like this is my world. You know, mm-hmm. this is how I've, I've I've learned to get my workflow uh, the way I know it works best for me. Um, but yeah, it's just great to know there's other people out there with with different workflows, different mindsets. Mm-hmm. But we all have the same goal. Of, sure. It's got you got to have the final product sounding its best, you right? Know, way there's a lot of different, yeah. There's a lot of different ways that are arriving at that, and I'm again, that's I would not consider myself an open-minded person at all, but I have to <laughs> to say that, yeah, I have to admit that I hear a lot of stuff come out of you know little studios like that that sounds really good, and you know, f- internet land people find your find your place because like you know with tape machines, so many people are more in love with the idea of a tape machine than the thing itself. You know, they don't know how to do the calibration, you know, head alignment. Um, yeah, and then it's like, but see, then I don't know how to, you know, uh, I can tune a guitar, but if you got an intonation issue or something like that, I, I can, I couldn't handle that. So, you know, if you want to look at tape machines, um, you know, call me. That's cool. Be happy to talk to anybody, uh, or you know, find somebody that that can work on them, and you know, try to work with somebody that knows stuff you don't know anything about. <laughs> All right. Yep. So, I, I think that's how you and I learn so much from each other. Is, you know, I didn't, I couldn't communicate with artists, and uh, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Right. So exactly. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to make a uh, tutorial video so you can learn how to use retune. To tune mm-hmm. vocals. I've used, I've even used the plugin to tune my dobro performance. Cause I'm not the greatest dobro person, you know, player, okay. but you know, I can play simple melodies and stuff. I'll just record my track, throw a tuning plugin on there. It's like, Oh, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so I use it as a tool to get the intention because I intended to play the note in tune, but it just didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah it's just uh you know it's a tool you treat mm-hmm. it like a tool like a good hammer you know how to use it you know we're not like right. we're not we're not out to make share sound alikes on everybody or like the, the t-pain you know rap auto-tune vocal kind of, i mean mm-hmm. yeah you can do that but like if you just want to gently oh that that note was just a little flat it just scoops it right into into pitch just one's the wiser you know right. sure yeah hey, I, and, I've been, I've been I even use it as a teaching tool. I have a vocal student that comes on Saturdays, maybe like twice a month, and we'll work on a song. She'll record a few passes. I'll bring her in back into the control room. Now throw a tuning plug in on her vocal track and be like, "All right, see that line? You're flat right there. You can she can see it on the screen. Like, yeah, okay, okay. It's flat. We kind of play through the scale, get her vocals more in tune technically. Mm-hmm. Sure. With the key of the song, and then she goes back in and sings it again. And she does it like a thousand times better. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very cool. I wouldn't have thought to use it that way. Yeah, because she can see where she messed up. Right. We can work on that section. And then, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I use it to, to tune vocals, but I also use it to teach. Say, hey, you're sure. sharp and flat. Let's learn how to get it right. Like what you were saying before, you got to get the performance right. Sure. Then, you know, just move on. So. Yeah, it's fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, all these tools that are available, you know, if you want to be bothered, and, you know, we do want to be bothered, uh, to make the most out of the resources you have. I mean, 30 years ago, I, I just, we wouldn't have had this stuff. And, you know, even with, well, you know, well, again, you know, with uh, all these digital goodies still, it's like, yeah, would it be nice if this were Electric Ladyland and we just, we had an, an A800 over here and we had a, you know, a real EMT plate back there and a, you know, a fail, Fairchild compressor. Yeah, it would be cool to have that stuff, but there's no way we would. You know, 30 years ago, we just wouldn't have it. Whereas now, you know, close enough is still better, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it works for me. Well, well, I appreciate you having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll have to do some more. Uh, maybe next time you uh, you have a, another session or a project come up that 
It's close to complete. Close to completion. I'll edit that out. Close to complete. I'll edit that again. <laughs> Take three. Close to completion. Then maybe I can have you back on talk about the process, all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I got something. I got something that's just about finished. Um. But so yeah, we can we can get into that some other time. Very good. All right, Bruce. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. All right. Rock on. All right, man. See ya. Okay. See ya.